0: Welcome back to the Mavericks and Misfits podcast with Jeff Lyle. Traditions enslave us, trends deceive us, but the truth of God's word never ceases to transform us. Join us now for another stretch of the soul as Jeff calls us to think hard on what we say we believe and to know more deeply why we believe it. Here's today's word for all the Mavericks and the Misfits.
1: Everybody welcome back to Mavericks and Misfits. I'm grateful that you have uh, checked out today's podcast episode. I'm grateful for any of you that are listening on a regular basis and um, we're just so blessed. You know we started this podcast. Um, I was actually on sabbatical. I had beaten cancer but I took a few extra months off just to hear from the Lord. This is back in the fall of 2020 and I um, just really felt like I was supposed to take some time off from uh, all of my involvement at the church I was at at that point, which was Newbridge Church, and uh, just hear from the Lord. And uh, frankly, I'll just be honest with you, when everybody was suggesting sabbatical to follow up my uh, physical time off from um, battling and beating cancer, uh, I didn't want to take the sabbatical. I was like, man, I'm I've been battling this cancer. I've been in a bad place for a while. Let me get back to work. But through the advice of my team at that time and also my wife and talking a little bit with my kids, I realized, okay, um, I just need to take a little bit of time off. And so it was at the very end of that time, I was just about to on-ramp back into my work at the church where the Lord just really said, Jeff, you you have an avenue and an outlet. Why don't you do a podcast at home? So Mavericks and Misfits started just kind of as a... well, if I'm being completely transparent, almost like just busy work to give me something to do um, after, you know, a long, long sabbatical. And uh, we had no idea that it would, it would reach as many as it has. And um, I think we're helping people and I'm grateful for that. And, um, you know, if you're tuning in regularly, you know what it's all about. There's no fluff. It's just me um, speaking to the listening audience and trying to navigate some things in the kingdom, in the big C church, um, in the culture, both theological, both um, relational. And ultimately, my goal is that I can help you in your journey with Jesus as I'm being helped in my own journey with Jesus. And so because of that, um you know, we kind of cast off everything that drags us down or clouds us up or, you know, freezes us. We, we we really want to be free and liberated in the truth of what God says in his word. And we want to get disentangled from all of the trappings of cultural Christianity in the 21st century, primarily American church. Some of you are listening in other parts of the world, but. Um, hopefully you're not feeling left out because I'm primarily addressing the church in the West and, uh, in America, the church is confused in the, in America, the church is going through a clear purification, uh, from heaven as the culture is getting less and less open to biblical Christianity. And the end result of that, as we approach the end of the age is that the wheat and the tares are going to be separated. The goat and the sheep are going to be separated Um, cultural christians are going to be separated from consecrated christians and uh, what we're going to be left with is a radiant um, bride that will be moving in smaller numbers but greater power And uh, you mark my words, that's exactly what's going to happen as we approach the end of the age, not because I said it, but because that is clearly what is presented in the word of God. And we're starting to see it happen before our very eyes. Recently, I posted um, just what I thought was a pretty benign post on Facebook. Um, I had preached a message on a Sunday morning about Isaac. Um, being very, very late in life, Old Testament Isaac, Genesis 26, being very, very late in life and building his first altar to God. His daddy Abraham built four altars during his lifetime and Isaac was a a father, a very successful businessman and he was um, fairly well on in years before he ever built an altar. And in in the midst of that, uh, I submitted to our church that morning That My personal belief is that the reason why Isaac was late in building an altar is because his only association with an altar was the one Abraham built and laid Isaac upon it when Isaac was a teenager or a young adult. Um, Isaac was the sacrifice. So, uh, of course, obviously he wasn't sacrificed, but his father Abraham, in a radical display of obedience to God, was willing to lay down Isaac as his son of promise on the altar and sacrifice him unto God. And of course, God said, Abraham, don't do it. I now know that you won't withhold anything from me. But nobody thinks about what Isaac must have lived with after that moment. Um, That's an intense thing to go through and it wouldn't be beyond reason to think that Isaac was a little reluctant in his own approach to the Lord and his own worship of God after that because you really don't see Isaac pressing into the Lord until um, you find him in Genesis 26 building his first altar late in life. So I made a statement in the sermon that I just kind of reframed and just posted in one sentence or maybe two sentences on Facebook. The statement was, is that it's hard to worship a God you're afraid of. That's the sermon statement I made. I made it live that morning. I don't know exactly what I said, but that was basically it. It's very, very difficult to build an altar and worship lavishly and freely a God that you are terrified of, or a God that you're reluctant to interact with, or a God with whom your primary association is that of, oh, wow, you're scary and you're dangerous. And my statement to the church that morning was, um, you know, Jesus Christ through his death, his atoning sacrifice, through what he paid on Calvary, not only removed the penalty of sin, but part of the component of the atonement is that he removes the dread of God. We're not supposed to live in dread, in phobia, in terror of the Lord. We're not. And so um, unpacking those thoughts in the sermon and then moving on later I was, uh, I don't remember what I was doing, but I was just thinking on the day and and I just put on Facebook, you know, what I thought was a fairly common sense, you know, reasonable, spiritual, biblical, uh, truth. And I, I simply wrote this, you can obey a God of whom you are afraid, but you can't worship him. You can obey a God of whom you are afraid, but you can't worship him. Um, And man, that really triggered some people. I mean, some people, I don't know that they were upset, but they were, they pounced. There was a little, there were some snarky comments, but most of it was just like, hey, Jeff, I think you're, you're probably missing something here. What about the fear of the Lord? And what about, you know, Jesus saying, don't fear those that can destroy the body, but fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And there were there were comments, I think I'm going to give benefit of doubt to everybody that were just they were like, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. This sounds like some kind of irreverence towards God, because, man, if, if we are really right with God, we should live in fear of him. And what I noticed in the comments, and I'm going to say, I don't, I don't know how many comments there were. I just, I, I had to quit reading them at one point and I, I tried to answer a few, but I realized, oh, this was going to be better handled in a Facebook video, which I did later. And then this podcast, because what I realized is I touched on something that it kind of aroused my concern. I'm thinking, are our churches filled with people that are afraid of God? And do we understand the difference biblically between the clearly scriptural validity of the fear of the Lord versus the anti-biblical living in dread of God? And I think, based on the comments, there is at least some confusion, if not some some outright um, blindness to the full comprehensive effect of the atonement of Jesus Christ, what he did to atone for our sins, to reconcile us unto God, and to purge us of everything between us and God that would cause us to live in a state of dread or constant fear or um, kind of an anxious uncertainty about God and his response to us. And so let me frame it up this way. I'm going to assume that as a Christian, if you are indeed a Christian listening to this podcast, that you you want to obey God. And and I'm I'm assuming you're, you're doing that. But let me ask you the question that we need to mine down into. Why do you obey God? It's an important question. What is your motivation for obeying God? Because if your motivation for obeying God is that of fear of consequences if you don't obey God. If that is your primary motivation, that is not worship. That's not worship. That is the heart of a slave, not the heart of a son. And so if your motivation for obeying God is that you seek to please God, that you want to bring pleasure to his heart, that you want to walk in fellowship with him, that you don't want to do anything that might breach that, um, that sense of relational abiding in God, that you don't want to grieve his heart, then that is a healthy motivation for obeying the Lord. And so worship is more than obedience. Worship is a relational, not a liturgical, not a religious, but worship is a relational pulse in the heart of the child of God, towards God, who is worthy of our obedience, worthy of our reverence, worthy of our trust, worthy of our love, worthy of our submission. That is worship. Worship is relational. And a lot of people do not differentiate between a slavish obedience to God versus a joyful, intentional, zealous eager expectant pursuit of the lord to know him to experience him that's worship to know god and to enjoy him everlastingly is worship and so when i made the statement and perhaps my error in doing so let me let me be fair here my error was is i just boiled down you know some pretty big concepts into a Two, two sentences. You can obey God. You can you can obey God from fear, but you can't worship him from fear. In other words, you can obey God if you're afraid of him, but you can't worship him if you're afraid of him. And maybe I was just uh, a little naive in thinking that people would understand that. And of course, the responses were were clear that people didn't understand it. And, and frankly disagreed with it. So I'm hoping today that what I share with you today, if you happen to say, I don't know about that, Jeff, maybe these, these chunks of verses that I want to give you will help you understand why I believe and stand by my original statement that you can't obey a God that you're afraid of, but you can't worship a God that you're afraid of. I stand by that. Matter of fact, I stand by it emphatically and through gathering these verses, I'm even more convinced it's true. Um, but, but I want to give you the opportunity to know why, um, you know, why I said what I said, posted what I posted, and then, you know, give you a chance to process it. So basically, it boils down to this issue of the fear of the Lord, which you see all throughout the Bible, both Old Testament especially, and in the New Testament. The fear of the Lord is a biblical concept. And so you, you've got to recognize that this is, for Christians, for those of us who are justified by faith, who are forgiven through the blood of Jesus, who are accepted by Christ, who are complete in Christ, who are sons and daughters of God now, through faith in Jesus Christ, the fear of the Lord is primarily a reverence and awe. That's exactly what it means for Christians. And this is this is the motivating factor for us to surrender to the creator of the universe. It is a fear and a reverence and an awe that is intermingled with love and trust. It is not dread. The primary posture of the heart for the Christian is not dread of God. And so when we talk about the fear of the Lord, it is not this Old Testament dread, don't touch the mountain of God lest you die kind of thing. That is the portrayal of God in much of the Old Testament because what God was doing through the Old Testament was establishing an awareness of his holy and righteous character while simultaneously establishing the fact that man is not righteous, man is not holy, and if mankind dares to approach God on his own terms, mankind will die. And so the fear of the Lord in the Old Testament for those who did not have the eternal atonement of Jesus Christ was... God is holy. God is righteous. God is other than you are. You can't approach him on your own terms. There must be sacrifice. And it does leave one with a certain fear in a sense of, oh my goodness, don't mess with God. It does. That is not the primary intent, but it does leave you with that emotional response to God. When you get to the New Testament, although God doesn't change between testaments, the manner of us interacting with God clearly is. Um, Changes in the sense that Jesus Christ came and died. Jesus Christ as God came and died for the sinner. So the one who was holy and righteous and, and immense and other became like us yet without sin so that he could connect and he could bring to life those who were dead in their sins, those who were lost in their rebellion, those who were ignorant in their mind and alienated by their wicked works. God came to restore all of that, and in order to do that, Jesus Christ had to die as one of us to fully satisfy the holy, righteous demands of God. And here's the good news. When he did that, all of the holiness and the righteousness and the justice and the perfection and the beauty and the all and the and the reverence and the otherness of God was completely transferred and imputed to our standing before God. In other words, we are not divine, we are not God's, but we have the same standing before the Father that Jesus, the righteous son, does. And because of that, Dread and terror and that type of fear is gone. And if you're operating or interacting with God according to the Old Testament uncertainty and dread and fear and anxiety and never knowing how, how good good enough is, then you are not worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Because the truth of the matter is you're reconciled unto God. You are no longer behind the condemnation. Um, Let me give you probably a summary verse that kind of undergirds everything I'm saying. When you look in Hebrews 12 and you get to verses 28 and 29, this is what the writer of Hebrews says. Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. So you see that worshiping God acceptably is attached to reverence and awe, but not phobia, not dread, not terror. And my original Facebook post was simply saying, if you're afraid of God, you can't worship him acceptably. And it's backed up by Hebrews 12, 28, and 29. It doesn't mean that you're casual. Oh, no. You, listen, if you know me, you've never heard me. Matter of fact, I say it all the time. Casual, flippant Christianity is unbiblical. I would never advocate that. But the antithesis is not, okay, since we, we can't be flippant casual, we need to live in a dread, a terror, an anxiety an unhealthy being afraid of God. It's not either or. It's not either you're flippant and casual or you're terrified of God. There is this beautiful place of abiding where you recognize the awe and the majesty of God, the holiness of God, the power of God. I mean, he is immeasurably different than us in the sense of his, his eternal state is perfect and holy and righteous and good. And we are flawed and fallen and sinful. And quite honestly, apart from him, we're rebels, but, but because of Jesus and what he's done, Christians, I'm talking to Christians here. You're not supposed to live in dread of God. Why? Because you're reconciled to him because Jesus took in his body, every single thing that ought to make us afraid of God. Punishment, condemnation, divine justice, retribution. Jesus Christ took it. The full wrath of God has been taken by and in Jesus Christ on behalf of every single Christian. So therefore, all of the stuff that we might be afraid of if we were independent of Christ and staring at this holy God... Yeah, if you're outside of Christ, you should be absolutely stark, raving, terrified, because you are abiding under the wrath of God. But I'm not talking to those people. My post was to Christians, and that's why I said, you can't worship a God of whom you are afraid because if you are living in fear of God let me tell you that's a relational thing that's not a theological thing primarily it may it may come from bad theology but it's a relational thing because you don't you don't want to be close to that which terrifies you you want to put distance between that which you're afraid of and yourself you want to run from the things that cause you fear so you cannot Press in, in worship of God, if you are afraid of him, you can obey him at a distance. Listen, I can teach a dog to obey. And, and, and the, and the key is this in, in the, in the, in, in the, in the relationship that we have with the Lord, his primary thing is not, I want to get you to obey. You will obey as a Christian, but you will obey not because God has to force you to obey. You will obey because you will find the delight in obeying a God that you trust and love. And so that's why I said you can obey a God that you're afraid of, but you can't worship him. Listen, let me just give you more Bible because a lot of the the objections to what I wrote were just misunderstandings from scripture. So I'm going to give you proactive scripture that supports what I'm saying here. I'm going to let you process it. Um, remember Romans 8, 15? Now, this is, this is a slam dunk verse that applies directly to what I'm talking about to Christians. Romans 8, 15 is speaking to Christians. It says, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery that returns you to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, I don't know that we need much more than that. So Christians, let me let me just apply this. Christians, this is God's word. We did not receive a spirit of slavery that returns us to fear. Do you get it? We were delivered from fear because we came out of slavehood and we became sons and daughters. And so the Holy Spirit, when he comes, does not return you back to a slavish fear of God. It says you didn't receive a spirit of slavery that returns you to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. Okay, do you get it? The, the, the cry, Abba, Father, is the thematic cry of worship. Abba, Father. It is a longing. It's an expression of relationship. It is, in essence, it is what an Aramaic, a child, would say to its father back in the first century, Daddy, Daddy, I need you, I want you, I love you, come get me. It is a an expression of intimacy and longing for connection to a father. And God's word says that the spirit that motivates and lives within the Christian is not a spirit of slavery that returns us to fear. It's the exact opposite. It is the spirit of sonship by whom we cry, the spirit crying within us, father, I long to be near you. I want you come near Lord. It's the exact opposite of the spirit of fear. The spirit of fear says, God is scary. God is big. God is unpredictable. God is holy. I am not. I'm living in dread because he's different. There must be some kind of fear because, um, you know, I'm not good. I'm not good enough. He's glorious. So I've got to be afraid of him because you never know when he might see something in me that makes him mad and he's going to boom, he's going to get me. That has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, I'll go so far as to say that is an anti Christ spirit that God will never put in you. You did not receive a spirit of slavery that returns you to fear. That's Romans eight fifteen. Write it down. Believe it. So think about this. What about Hebrews four? So what? What is like what? When I say that you can obey a God that you, you're afraid of, but you can't worship Him, what? What, I guess we got to try to define on some sense, what does it mean to worship God? Does it mean just go to church? Does it mean sing songs? Does it mean do things for God? Does it mean give money? Does it mean abstaining from sin? I think it incorporates all of those things. But again, we got to get to the heart of the issue because worship is not primarily what you're acting in. Yes, worship has an active expression, but worship is a matter of what is the motivation of your heart toward God. What is your attitude towards god that is worship that determines your worship so jesus is being referenced in hebrews 4 and he's the high priest of all high priests that is being referenced and so the writer of hebrews says we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet he without sin and then verse 16 this is the definition for me. It's a foundational element of worship. Hebrews 4, 16. Let us then with confidence, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Do you get that? Worship is pressing into the throne, the situated place of God, the place where Jesus Christ sits, the throne room, the inner sanctum, the holy of holies. Let us Christians with confidence. The old King James said, with boldness, let us with confidence draw near. Worship is drawing near to God progressively, intentionally trusting, believing, loving. So that is the the whole premise of what I wrote. How can you come confidently before a God in worship of whom you are terrified? If your primary relational, or even maybe not even your primary, if your consistent relational DNA with God is that of dread and terror, it will undermine your worship. We are to come confidently. We are not to come as Christians hesitatingly thinking we're going to get vaporized because the closer we get to God, the more he sees we're unworthy. Therefore we are in dread. And so we would prefer to work for him at a distance as a slave than to sit at the table with him and look him in the eye as a son or a daughter. And so we we got to realize he understands our weaknesses. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. Some of you won't worship God the way you're supposed to worship God because you're afraid of your weaknesses. Don't you know that he knew all, He knows your weaknesses more than you do? He sees stuff you don't even see about yourself. We justify ourselves at a high level by finding somebody worse to compare ourselves to. And Jesus sees everything within us and he says, I love you. I died for you. I made you whole. I brought you to the father. You're mine forever. I've cleansed you comprehensively. I will never condemn you. I will never accuse you. You are justified. You are made as if you had never sinned before me. I've comprehensively welcomed you. And you won't believe that if you're thinking all the time, well, but I'm weak and I'm frail and I've sinned and I'm imperfect and God hates that stuff. So I better, I better keep a little distance and do a little religious song and dance and make sure that I do enough good where I can finally justify myself. Do you see the irrationality of that? So again, Hebrews ten twenty two. let us draw near I mean, this is Hebrew. This is Bible, man. Let us, the Christian, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Listen, if you're afraid of God, you will not draw near to him. You will not. You'll find something that keeps you and him slightly separated. It doesn't mean you won't go to church. It doesn't mean you won't sing. It just means you won't enjoy God at all. It will be religion. It will be you doing something to keep the God of whom you are afraid at bay, keeping him just far enough away where he can't quite get to you. But the counter of that is drawing near to him, with a true heart in full assurance of faith, meaning you've got to believe that he's, he means what he says. What does he say? Well, Colossians two thirteen and 14, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How did he do that? Verse 14 of Colossians 2, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And if that's not enough, it says, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Kapow. Man, that's just an atomic bomb of beautiful truth there. You know why I'm not afraid of God? And forgive me, if that bothers you, you just have to work through it. I will never come into agreement with you and say, I, as an accepted, forgiven, atoned for, justified, beloved, welcomed son of God, I will never say, yeah, I'm going to enter into your religious agreement and say, I'm terrified of this one who gave his life so that I would never be terrified of him. It says that I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I was dead. But God in my deadness came to me and he made me alive together with Jesus. And in doing so, he forgave all, 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 all my trespasses your trespasses are your sins, your willful rebellion and violation of God's character. You, you crossed the boundary, you broke the law, you violated his holy standard. And the word of God says through Jesus Christ, he's forgiven me of all of that past, present and future. It's all forgiven. And how did he do it? He canceled the record of debt that stood against me. That's Colossians two fourteen. So there is in heaven, if, you, if heaven had a, a, um, a records room, you could go into the records room, you could type in my name, you could, hit, you could hit file, and when you open up the file, you find the heading that says sins, and you pull up that folder, and guess what? You won't find a thing. You won't find a single thing in man I'm just getting blessed saying this in God's record room of heaven just roll with me here there isn't an actual record room in heaven but I'm trying to put it in terms we can understand in God's holy records there is no sin on the account of Jeff Lyle none and I'm not afraid that there's ever going to be you know why Because the cancellation of my debt and my records, it says it, Colossians 2.14, the canceling the record of the debt that did stand against me with its legal demands has been set aside. How did it get set aside? The Bible says, Colossians 2.14, Jesus nailed it to his cross. So what are you afraid of? No, legit question. I'm not asking you emotionally. I'm trying to get you some doctrine in you to make your emotions submit to the truth because the Bible says those that worship God must worship him in spirit and truth. It's not only the immaterial spirit. It's the objective truth. And if you're afraid of God, it is because in some sense you do not recognize how justified you are in the extent of what Jesus has accomplished on your behalf. You're failing to under to properly value what Jesus has done for you and you're failing to receive the grace of God as God describes it and you're listening to something else you're listening to that inner protest that says well that sounds too good to be true if people believe that they're going to go off in sin and live recklessly and they're going to just say oh it's all nailed to the cross well no you can't do that as a Christian because the spirit of God living within you cries out for intimacy with the father which will never live you to a life the profligate life of of chasing sin down so let me give you this, and then I'm done. I know this is like fire hydrant kind of content stuff, but it's I'm I'm going hard after your hearts because you're not supposed to live on probation. You're not supposed to live in dread. You're not supposed to live in this, you know, gnawing feeling inside of you that it, you're just not going. You're going to be the one he looks at and says, "Yeah, my grace comprehensively forgave everybody else, but not you because you're a different degree of bad." And so let me give you the atomic bomb of why I stand by my statement that you can obey a God you're afraid of, but you can't worship him. First John 4, 18, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. 1 John 4, 18 tells me that when I know God, the God of the Bible, as he reveals himself, I will love him. And I will love him because I will be convinced that he first loved me. And when I recognize that his love for me found me at my lowest point when I was dead in my trespasses and sins, and he still loved me, and he loved me so much That he paid the price to take those sins that distanced me from him. He took them away, violently nailed the record of my transgressions to his cross, canceled the debt that I owed him and embraced me as a son, took me out of a slavehood to sin, brought me into the kingdom as a son, when I recognize that that symbiotic love from God to me and me to God will evict fear. It will evict dread. It will abolish a phobia of God and I will not be afraid of him. It never means that I don't reverence him. I don't live in awe of him that I underestimate or devalue his holiness? No, because all that he is is no longer against me. It is for me. Why? Because I'm his boy. I'm his son. And if you're in Jesus, you are too. So all of the very things about God that could cause me to be afraid of him are now the very things that work on my behalf. His holiness is a blessing to me, not a terror to me. His might is a blessing to me, not a dread to me. His power and perfection, his otherworldly, infinitely immeasurable otherness than me in who he is in his nature and who I am in my nature, that now all works for me. That means he has imparted and imputed to me the best of who he is, if I can say it that way. When I was lost in my sin, all of that was against me, but now all of it's for me. And you want me to live in a state of dread and being afraid of God? No way. You can choose to do that if you want to, but perfect love in my life, hallelujah, it's casting out fear every day. And the only time I get phobic or dreadful about God is when I fail him, when I sin, when I rebel, or when the enemy accuses me. And it's only a moment because I'm so convinced in the theology that when I sin against God, I know that I violated his holy standard. And in that moment, I don't go on and just say, oh, no. I got to hide from God. I got to pull an atom. I got to get a fig leaf and hide in the garden. I say, no, God, I come into agreement right now with your holy righteous word. What I just said, what I just thought, what I just did was sin. So I come into agreement with you about that. And I ask you, let the blood of Jesus be applied. Remove that sin. I will allow nothing to come between me and you because I won't live in fear and I won't live in dread. So friends, that is um, kind of an avalanche of why I posted what I posted on Facebook. Um, And I just hope that you'll believe the word of God and I stand by it. There may be more to come on this issue. Feel free if you want to, to email me at jeff at maverickmisfit.com. If you've got questions about this, I'm not going to debate with you, but if you've got legit questions, I'm happy to try to answer those. Jeff at maverickmisfit.com. But I would say this, consider the verses that I've given you today. First John 4:18, Colossians 2:13 and 14. Hebrews 10:22, Romans 8:15, Hebrews 12: 28 and 29. That's literally like six passages probably out of two or three dozen that I could have brought to you, but I just don't have time. I've already gone over a little bit. So consider these things and listen, get free, man, Hallelujah. Don't live tomorrow in dread. Don't live the rest of the day in dread. Just believe that the salvation of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, is so comprehensive that he not only wants to remove your judicial guilt, but he also wants to remove the relational barrier that is erected through being afraid of him. There's nothing to be afraid of. You've not been appointed under wrath. You're a son or a daughter of God. You are fully accepted. You are accepted in the beloved. You are complete in Jesus Christ. And you either believe that or you don't. And if you don't believe it, I love you, but that's not my problem. My problem is not for me to dial down my confidence in what God has said over me so I can meet you and your lack of confidence. What I'm trying to do is up you in your belief system and bring you to a place where you look at what the word of God says and, and understand it's there so that you won't live in fear and dread. He loves you. He saved you. He came after you. All that would have been against you is now for you because you're in Christ. Glory to God. Good stuff. I love theology. Hallelujah. I hope it's helped you today. Tune in next time for another episode of Mavericks and Misfits.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode of Mavericks and Misfits. If you were helped by what Jeff shared today, please take a moment to rate and review Mavericks and Misfits with Jeff Lyle on iTunes or Spotify. Your review helps us enlarge our digital footprint to reach more potential listeners every week. Also, please take advantage of the free written and video resources made available at TransformingTruth.org. Join us again every Tuesday for a brand new episode of Mavericks and Misfits.